This is The Political Animals, conversations at the intersection of religion, politics, and culture. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole, and this is the second part of my conversation about political theology with Josh Lewis of the Saving Elephants podcast. You're listening to The Saving Elephant Show. Jonathan, welcome back. So glad you can make it back for part two. We spent the better part of an hour last time trying possibly in vain to even define what is political theology. If the the listener is very interested, please go back and listen to part one. But I wanted to kick things off here with maybe something that's a bit more suited for, at least initially, the layman listening to this. The the individual's like, you know, this theory is interesting and fine, but what is the practical application of some of these things? All throughout scripture, of course, there are things we could look at. If we're focused on political philosophy from, or pardon me, political theology from a Christian perspective, Christian point of view, there are two areas in scripture that I suspect most Christians or most individuals well-versed in their Bibles will immediately call to mind of, ah, this seems to have some sort of a political application. And so I wanted to read, and, and we'll take them in turn. I'll read the first one from the book of Mark. Uh, for reasons I will not get into, I mostly read the Bible in the old King James English, so I will I'll give you the chapter and verse in case you need to, uh, in case the listener needs to bring this up to a bit more contemporary speak. But here in the book of Mark, chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, it reads as such. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny, that I may see it. And they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and subscription? And they say unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. He, of course, being Christ, Jesus Christ, that the uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians have, have come to, uh, obviously to ask a very difficult, politically charged question, should we pay taxes or not? What say you as this religious authority? And this response of his, rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God, obviously has a lot of purchase, right? There there are many applications for this. But I just wanted to kick this off by asking, because on the one hand, it seems simple. On the other, it's like, well, did he actually answer the question? Or or how do we apply that? Uh, We in Western civilization, how do we divide between this is the state's and this is God's? This uh, passage, of course, is much discussed and there are many opinions offered in relation to it. So I can really only give a personal opinion. So that's just an important caveat, I think, to note that <laughs> when, when we come to these uh, famous passages in, in the Bible, the ones that receive a lot more attention than some of the others, obviously the opinions proliferate. And so we just need to be aware that I can provide one perspective within a, a context of contention. I think I, I I interpret this pretty simply, actually, and I, I would hesitate to put to uh, use it as load bearing for too much load. And I think it often is. You get whole political theologies that are founded on this single verse. And as a matter of course, I don't like the idea of grounding your political theology in a single verse. <laughs> I think that's a an unwise uh, approach. Look, I, th- I think what it, the way I understand it very simply is to simply warn those of us who are followers of Jesus to not conflate the state with uh, God. That is to say that there is some distinction to be made to be recognized, to be understood between the temporal rulers on earth and the entire order political system uh, over society over which they preside and God, which after all is transcends 
our material existence and indeed is the creator of that material existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing, if we go back to the creation story in Genesis. Uh, beyond that, we, we start to speculate about where is the line, how hard is the line, what are our obligations to the state vis-a-vis God. I, I just keep it as that simple principle. Uh, and this harks back to something I think I mentioned in our part one uh, discussion of political theology. That is to not over-theologize politics. And I think this is the verse I would ground that view in. <laughs> Just say, look, Christ himself made this distinction between God and the temporal ruler, in this case Caesar, because there's a historical context here and uh, I just think it's a warning to never forget there's a distinction uh, if you want to press me on the significance of the distinction I think our ultimate allegiance obedience love worship ought to go to God and never to the uh, pretend messiah political messiah who is a human being and not the Christ and I would just note underlying all this Obviously, uh, you know, if I were to give a sort of academic paper on this, I would bring in some more complexity. But I'll just note this complexity and leave it hanging there that, of course, underlying this fascinating uh, story of Jesus being challenged, and it is a political challenge, that his enemies are trying to catch him out because they're really looking for a way to kill him and ultimately find it, that... um, Christ himself is depicted as the king, as mm. a king in the New Testament. So this this is a king who ultimately ascends to heaven and rules at the right hand of the Father, being challenged about the authority of this temporal king, Caesar. So that, that's, that's one complexity that I think is underlying it, but, but that's perhaps for another conversation that goes deep into some profound theological domain. So just to... To summarise what started as a, a simple answer, I think it, it's a warning to not conflate God and the temporal political system context and uh, men and women who rule in it and to remember where our ultimate allegiance lies, which if you read this in the wider context of the New Testament story is to the risen Christ. Mm. There are two things you did there that I very much appreciate. First of all, that you caveat this is Jonathan Cole's opinion, while I'm sure it's well thought through and well researched, is not, you know, air quotes, the opinion of, of what this verse means and that there's a lot of room for debate. Um, and, and secondly, your modest approach toward not taking statements such as this, and, and I would agree with you, if, if not the most, this is certainly one of those verses that I think would be most dangerous to build an entire political ideological system out of. We ought, we ought not to narrow these verses down or make them more narrow than they were intended or more broad than they were intended, right? I, uh, I'm thinking of a Greg Kokel. He's he's a um, apologist here in the United States. His ministry, Stand a Reason, he has this phrase he coined called never read a Bible verse, by which he does not mean it's not a good thing to read Bible the Bible, but rather never stop with a verse, pluck it out as if shorn of its context, it could have any direct application that we could possibly even hope to understand what it what it means. And there are obviously parts of scripture that I think are far more easier to dissect and say, okay, that appears to stand and fall by itself. And others that you really have to not only know verse, chapter, book, but maybe the entire scripture as a component as a whole, as you allude to, this is the context of this, not only the temporal, but this is that they are talking to Christ the King, right? The living, the, the risen living Savior, that being said, so I, I want to press you on, on one aspect of this because, and I don't think it's terribly common, but one possible reading of this verse, and I'm curious if you think this would be a misapplication or misinterpretation, is when you, when you look at this phrase to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, I could certainly understand somebody sitting, sitting back and saying, well, I understand that Caesar is powerful and I understand that's sort of representative of the state, but in reality, everything is God's. It looks to me like what this verse is doing is giving me license to not pay taxes, not obey laws, because my risen king is Christ. Therefore, I have no allegiance to the state. Well, this is why we need to follow 
a piece of wisdom you just gave your listeners to never, or and and one I gave perhaps as well about um, don't read a single verse as though it's just an aphorism and not part of a a complex narrative of revelation with multiple books and an old and a new testament, and don't ground your entire political theology on a simple verse. So this is you know the the cheekily simple answer that gets me out of the need to give a long-winded answer is to just simply bring in Romans 13, 1 and say you have, to, you have to read this verse in the context of other verses that seem to speak directly to what we understand by the term politics, political authority, political order, and um, build something out of all of them that takes all of them seriously and integrates them. And I think there are ways to integrate them. I don't think they're incompatible at all so that that's really the the simple answer there but also i would just even if we just want to stick on the same verse i would say well that we've got to be we've got to be careful not to read into a single verse uh, our own political views and also content that's simply not in the verse strictly speaking so there's nothing in that verse says that says you you don't have to pay taxes and i think it's romans 13 itself if i'm not mistaken in about verse seven, that basically says pretty clearly, pay, pay your taxes. taxes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, again, this—I mean, it might, might be just worth noting that one of the real challenges with political theology—and I'm—I'm not immune to this myself. Uh, so, don't don't get me wrong. I'm, this is not me preaching from some great height where I have transcended this problem. And and it also goes back to something I think I articulated in in our first conversation, which is that we, we learn politics not in a vacuum but through personal experience and in our particular context. So we learn what politics is, you and I, Josh, through a liberal democracy uh, and we inevitably and unavoidably bring our own political concepts, understandings, experience, language, idiom that we use in our society when we read uh, these passages. We don't live in the Roman Empire. We're not Jews in first century Palestine or Greeks or whoever those early generations were reading it. We always have to be conscious and vigilant about slipping in concepts from our time that uh, are deeply embedded in our minds that are not in the, the biblical passages themselves. And that's hard work and that's that's why all theology needs to be done in community so that there's some accountability and some contest and critical engagement to keep us honest because uh, if we just do it individually, uh, I think what tends to happen is we, we project our own culture into the Bible and it, it often happens unconsciously. Hmm. You mentioned Romans 13.1 and Romans 13.7. Uh, I would like to turn that – is, that is the second passage I wanted to turn to quite apropos Romans 13, 1 through 7. Again, this is the old King James. And I, and I should probably preface by saying this, of course, written by the Apostle Paul. I think Romans is a very popular book, I guess, among uh, individuals who want to understand the plan of salvation because, as at least as I understand it, he's writing to a general audience he is not yet engaged with. And so this sticks out in my mind as one of the books that is a little bit more digestible because it's not as specific to the context of the church he's visiting. So it's almost more a broad message of what Paul is teaching the gospel is here. But here in the middle of this book, in the 13th chapter, of course, it gets very political. Uh, this is one we talked about in part one, and you mentioned it just now, but I'll read it again. Romans 13, 1 through 7 reads as follows. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers for there is no power but from God. The powers that be are ordained by God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth, resisteth the ordinance of God. And those who resist shall receive for themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, an avenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Therefore, ye must be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. 
For for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. If I'm not mistaken, the NIV translation simply says pay your taxes in that part, but we can kind of understand that there. So you mentioned this in part one, like I said, and I, I everything you talked about last time, I think the thing that stuck with me the most, I'm not mistaken, you were quoting someone else when he said the problem with Romans 13 is that it's so clear. They don't give us a lot of wiggle room here. So so let's, let's treat this that same way that here, uh, obviously the context here is he's talking about the evil Roman Empire that maybe not in that day, but very shortly thereafter was actively persecuted and even murdering Christians. There doesn't appear to be a lot of wiggle room here for any sort of justifiable resistance against those powers. Um, And that strikes me as something that doesn't seem to hold true throughout Christian history, that we just always lay over and let them roll over us. So what is a fair understanding or application of this passage? This is by far the most contentious political teaching in the Bible. Uh, And it confounds a a lot of people. And just as one short preface before answering, I would note, because I find this really interesting, that uh, I sense enormous discomfort with this verse on both the Christian left and Christian right these days. Mm -hmm. This is really a thorn in the side of the kind of freedom sort of end of conservatism <laughs> yeah, can, just sorry to interrupt but it just occurred to me almost every single time i've ever heard somebody on the right quote from this passage it's almost always stuck on this idea that he beareth not the sword in vain as an argument for the death penalty and that's about it everything else is roundly ignored yeah and i think the word there is cherry picking but the also, uh, this is a massive thorn in the side of the Christian left, which wants to really depict the state as something evil, ungodly, demonic. You think of John Howard Yoder and, and people of his ilk did enormous contortions to try and bend <laughs> this verse into something that could could condemn uh, the state. So it's just worth noting because uh, I think it's really interesting and important that uh, this really is the bane of the existence these days, I think, of what I would call the Christian left and the, the Christian right. It, it needs to be read with very careful attention, I think. And in particular, and this goes to my earlier point, we always need to read biblical passages not just for what they say but conscious and with careful attention to what they don't say because, again, it's easy to read into biblical passages, uh, what we want to see there. So where to start? The Why don't I start with some things that, that I don't think are actually in the passage to kind of clear away some of the junk because that the, the analysis and discussion in, and interpretation of this verse is just surrounded with so much uh, flotsam and jetsam that have, have been brought to it. So it doesn't say... Submit to the, it does say superior authorities in Greek, but let's, I, I think it's fair to just translate that in our context as uh, political authorities. It doesn't say submit to the political theologies because they're nice people, they're godly, they're excellent. Um, it doesn't even uh, say because each individual ruler has been selected by me. It's really, I think, this notion that authority is instituted by God, and I take that as a more generic proposition, that is political authority exists as part, I would say, of the created order, not that that's necessarily in there, but that comes from the broader context of of Scripture, and that political authority, not a specific ruler, I want to emphasize that, has been instituted by God really for humankind's well-being, both to uh, foster and facilitate and encourage the good and also to punish evil. And so I, I think the way to read this verse, that's a kind of illustration, is as a generic proposition about political authority and those that wield it. It's not 
I don't think it goes further. It's, it's got nothing to do with policy. It doesn't mean every policy decision taken by every ruler is sort of divinely ordained. It doesn't. It's not a commentary on the quality of rulers, clearly. And I should just say, if we don't read it that way, we we run, in my view, into a massive theodicy question. I touch on this in my book on Oliver O'Donovan, actually, The Reign of God, just to shamelessly plug the book. Because <laughs> uh, uh, he has a really interesting interpretation of this verse that it's telling you what the purpose of government is post-Easter. So he has this whole thesis that government exists for a specific purpose pre the Christ event. The Christ event transforms that purpose and actually reduces the scope of government to judgment alone. Judgment he defines as a kind of moral discrimination between right and wrong and brings it into the, the public light. And so... You know, focusing on that verse about, uh, you know, for the good and ekthesis is the Greek term, you know, for punishment can actually mean vengeance as well. But I don't think that's really how we should read it. Uh, this is the way God actually rules over the world, world is through the judgments of secular government. So I did a case study on North Korea and, you know, it's an ordered society, it has a political system. It's actually a more stable system when you think about it than than your country right now, Josh, if I may dare to say <laughs> so. I mean, it's, it's basically had three rulers since about 1947, a di- dynasty with uh, two peaceful transitions, you know, single polity in form of government, uh, brutal, oppressive, inhumane, ghastly to be sure, but functional, you know, like, it's more ordered than uh, Nigeria with respect to Ni- any Nigerian listeners and uh, certainly more so than many parts of the the world right now. So I, I wanted to read Romans in that context. So are we, are we to think that the Kim regime that presides in Pyongyang over North Korea, which I think there would be a consensus globally is one of the worst regimes on the planet, kind of least desirable place to to live has that in what sense has that been instituted by god and this is this is why this this theodicy problem actually shapes my reading of romans and it's why i think apart from just the the greek language of the of the verses themselves and its context and the rest of it uh i think again my generic reading of romans avoids the theodicy problem and it says it says that, look, government per se has been instituted by God for the good of human beings because you need a mechanism to deal with evil, you know, rape, murder and the like, theft. And also it can actually do good things like help people in need, provide security, pass laws, preside over a system of economic prosperity and the like. I realise I'm putting this in modern terms then you can you can condemn as a Christian the actual regime in Pyongyang and the way it rules. You can even condemn the system whilst recognising that there is a legitimacy, that it is a legitimate state, it has a legitimate government, we don't like it, we're critical of it, but that is the way people are supposed to be ruled in God's creation with some kind of political authority, some kind of order, some kind of legal system. And this is where I'll say something perhaps shocking, that ordered system of government and society in North Korea I think actually is better than what Ukrainians are living under right now. So that is that we should never remember that that disorder can actually be worse even than oppressive order. When, you're, when your major threat is that your children could be killed by shelling and you might be forced to leave your home and live destitute and your country is being gobbled up and just generations destroyed in, in warfare. That's the worst situation that humans can find themselves and live in. And when you think about it, that is against what Romans 13, 1 teaches, which is that there, there are these authorities instituted by God for the good of human beings, and that is how we are supposed to live. Now, the other reason I, I, I think this generic reading, apart from I would argue it's valid, although that's others would disagree, I think another virtue of it, if I may say so, is that it's non-prescriptive. So 
but it doesn't say God has instituted democracy, theocracy, monarchy, socialism, communism, anarchy. It's just talking generically about the authorities that exist. So there is a freedom there, I think, for humans to work out the best way of governing themselves. I don't think it locks you into any particular order or polity or system of of government. But I think it is saying that you should live under some form of of government. So if, if there's one ism that it condemns, for me, it's anarchism. I think anarchism is the, the one system uh, that really is in complete contravention to what this teaching uh, says, which is that there is a legitimacy to political authority. It is instituted by God. It's there for the good of uh, humankind. And so you are to submit to it in a kind of general sense. Submit, I, w- I would read here as recognise the fundamental legitimacy of. And again, I would just to try and run these two lines of thinking of what it does say and what it doesn't say. It doesn't say thou shalt obey every single law, policy, decision. You should vote in a particular way. We shouldn't underestimate the scope and degree of freedom that it gives us to use our political imagination, the freedoms we have in in our particular modern context that were probably unimaginable to Paul and people in those days. And so that that's why I think it should be read in a generic sense about the legitimacy per se of government and the fact that that fits into God's intention for the way that his creation is governed. And you could go the Oliver O'Donovan route and say that this is one of the ways God actually rules the earth is through human rulers which sit within this kind of divine hierarchy of authority. It's interesting you point out that you don't believe this bears any prescription, right? That this is not saying, therefore, democracy or monarchy is what government ought to be. Um, Because I'm going to read it again here, just verses 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but from God, the powers that be are ordained by God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and those who resist shall receive for themselves damnation. If I'm not mistaken, this is the exact passage that was often used by the monarchs of old in Europe in the Middle Ages as sort of a, if you disobey the king, or if you are a usurper of, say, his highness or, or that authority, uh, you not only risk judgment from the state, but even in the eyes of God, because God put the king there. Therefore, he because that is his chosen monarch. And, and certainly in a very broad sense, I don't think there's any verse that explicitly states monarchy is how societies ought to be organized. But in a very broad sense, I think it's a lot easier to read passages in the Old Testament and they wedge very nicely in with a monarch than in our respective democracies. I I understand you're not saying it's prescriptive. And and here's the thing. I doubt anybody listening to this, and certainly myself, because of the culture we grow up in, can look at this and be like, well, of course this is not saying there ought to be a king. But people have used that verse for this reason. You know, saying this clearly shows that God has ordained our leader as such and to disobey the leader is literally to disobey God because God put that leader there. Um, This, of course, is where uh, John Locke, you know, early days of liberalism, I mean that in the, not in the American sense, not in the uh, progressive left, but rather the broader ideas of of individualism, if you will, stood against this very teaching, right? That it it was not a matter of God ordaining our leaders in some sort of a fixed sense that we could never question or replace, but rather we have a right, ironically, from God himself to replace our leaders if they abuse their authorities. But what do you think of that? Because this verse I know was actually used for those purposes back in the day. Yeah, I'd make a few comments. The first thing I would say is this goes, this is kind of fleshing out the implications of my reading of this passage. Uh, It, my reading forces me to say that monarchy is a legitimate form of government. I'm not actually a monarchist as it happens, but again, the virtue of reading this in the generic way that I think it we have to read it today is that it forces us to recognize the legitimacy of political orders 
perhaps we don't wouldn't wish to live in ourselves. I mean, there's no reason why. I mean, my my own country is a constitutional monarchy, although the British monarch, which is the technical head of state in our constitution of Australia, is only a, really a ceremonial uh, position. But it, even an absolute monarchy, Saudi Arabia is an absolute monarchy, albeit of an Islamic variety. And I say, look, that's <laughs> I, I'm. I'm not going to the Saudi embassy tomorrow to get a visa to try and live there. It's far from what I would call my ideal system of government. But as a Christian trying to read Romans 13 faithfully, I say that is one legitimate form of government. Uh, And I think it, in some sense, perhaps it is instituted by God, which is not to say that uh, God is sort of pulling the strings uh, you know, of every policy decision or the like, but it's certainly better for Saudis to live under some kind of ordered, legitimate law-governed society again than what the Ukrainians are facing today on the front lines of the, the war with with Russia. A comment I would make historically is um, when it comes to the historical assumption, and you're right, there was a historical assumption that some form of divine monarchy as existed in Western Europe throughout the Middle Ages with all the principalities and large and small kingdoms constantly shifting, was the obvious uh, God-instituted single best form of government. I think he's an illustration of the warning I gave earlier that they assumed that because that was the system they, they, they had. That assumption now looks like an assumption because you and I know that it is actually possible to live in a democracy mm-hmm. and that kind of system of government can actually be very fruitful and prosperous and and productive. Uh, you've got to remember that all the way back to Aristotle and, and Plato, there was this scepticism about democracy that ran right throughout history and I think some of their concerns are valid or if not valid at least understandable but from our vantage point we know that it can be done i mean your democracy is basically the size of the roman empire if not bigger in terms of the the people the scope of the land and i know that uh, some of your listeners will feel that it's all going to bleep out the word right right now i mean it's still a pretty miraculous thing that your country <laughs> with what 350 something million people with all its diversity and its 50 states and its continental scope is uh, somehow able to function as a republic is is a remarkable thing so of course at, at each time you know particularly in history people had a constrained vision and imagination of what was possible and so i think given these were christian societies it was an easy assumption to say well you know, it wasn't that different from the Roman Empire in the sense that you had a single sort of ruler, or at least the Rome, that version of the Roman Empire, because it had different versions, and that somehow that was the God-instituted uh, rule. But this again is where every time we run into an ostensible difficulty in interpreting a piece of the Bible on politics, we we look elsewhere in order to provide insight, and so. It's not just, you've got to remember in terms of scripture, it's not just individual verses, it's narrative because there is a narrative mm-hmm. um, flow. There's a beginning and an end. It begins with let there be light and it ends with <laughs> the eschaton in Revelations and there, there, is a, there, is, there is a historical progress and theological development throughout the Bible. And so the, the obvious retort to the medieval view that you know God's preferred or his his blessed anointed form of government is a divine monarchy. Okay, fine. Let's look at Israel and its covenantal history with God. The covenant with God's chosen nation survives and goes through every form of political circumstance. I think you could have from slavery in Egypt to the period of the judges, to tribal rule, uh, to a kind of theocracy with the rebuilding of the temple, to various forms of colonization, living under a Persian empire, exile in Babylon, Babylon living under Greek and Roman empires, and including monarchy. But of course, 
what is the context of the monarchy? It's extremely interesting, and this is actually one of the most fascinating political parts of the Bible. And uh, listeners will have to forgive me because I'm I'm terrible at remembering the precise verse and the exact text of of all of the political parts of the Bible. So I think it's two Daniel. Uh, you know, how does Israel end up with a king? They say to God, we want to be like the nations around us and therefore we want to have a king. Uh, God's not a fan of this mm-hmm. idea. It's depicted as a kind of rejection of God's political authority and eventually he he kind of reluctantly exceeds and gives the Israelites what they want and gives them a king. And then how does that go? Well, I think... I think what we can say is it's a bit up and down <laughs> when it comes to the, the history of the monarchy. Uh, they have some bad kings. They have some really good kings as well. So that, if nothing else, that that really complexifies uh, the question. And I've always found it curious that the medieval Christian thinkers somehow got around this, to me, very obvious depiction of monarchy as not divinely ordained it's 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 something that the israelites learn from the pagans around them and it's something not driven by god so much as the israelites themselves and there's a reluctance on god's part and i think the reluctance is theologically significant which is that there there is this risk that once once you once once you conceive of your single ruler as a divinely ordained monarch they can quite easily usurp god's authority in the minds of the subjects or before long you might find yourself worshiping or admiring the king or indeed the king may start to think that they are a bit godlike and that brings us all the way back to caesar i mean the the conceit of the roman empire was this kind of pseudo divinity of its rulers and there is this extra biblical history of divine kingship and divine kingship really means human rulers which reach attain some kind of status of divine and are figures of worship and of course why is it that the first generation of christian martyrs are killed you know you think of polycarp's moving and famous um, dialogue with the the provincial roman ruler as he's been uh i think he was burnt at the stake wasn't he or was it lions i can't remember but you know, he, they were demanding that he basically worship Caesar and he he couldn't do it because this goes back to the, the Markan passage. He, he understood this distinction between the status and nature of the, the human ruler, even if in some sense the legitimacy of their rule is instituted by God. And those martyrs did recognise the, the legitimacy because they, they succumbed to martyrdom they didn't rebel they didn't take up violence they didn't resist uh indeed christ himself in that famous passage with pontius pilate in john's gospel uh, and i think a lot of people miss this the i think the most important part of that whole dialogue is when he says look you have the authority to kill me and ultimately jesus submits to that that authority to that injustice but he does say look i could command legions of angels to come in and get myself out of this but I'm, I'm but you know you have authority from above from god and that's you mm-hmm. know so there's that whole uh issue and again i suppose what are we what are we saying you know people might find my particular reading of these individual passages a bit too academic nuanced qualified and the like but that's because as someone who's been studying political theology for the better part of a decade, I'm trying to look at it through the entirety of Scripture with all of the passages and the narrative and also bringing into play the great theological doctrines from creation through to the eschaton. And so that 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 is what your political theology ends up looking like, I think, if you are attuned to the full breadth of uh, Scripture Whereas what you'll find is a lot of political theology drills down into a couple of passages or it really mm-hmm. pegs itself to uh, one idea in the Bible, which admittedly is a, is a lot easier because you don't have to deal with the, the tensions and the, the complexity and the nuance. But I don't think that's a good 
reading strategy on any theological question personally. Nor do I. And I, you know, as you're talking about the passage where Israel asks for a king or when the nation of Israel moves to a monarch, um, and, and it was well put as you put as you said. I looked it up. It's in it's in First uh, Samuel begins in chapter eight, but it kind of goes on. Sorry, from I got there. totally wrong. Or even wrong. Yeah, right. yeah Daniel is one of the older books in the New Testament, or one of the newer books in the, in the Old Testament. I didn't mean um, Samuel. <laughs> yeah, I, I assumed you didn't mean Daniel, but anyhow, I didn't want to stop you there. Well, um, there isn't even a two Daniel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Samuel was the last of the judges because. What precedes the kings are the judges, and I, I'm fairly confident the most depraved, horrible stories in the Bible are found in the book of Judges. I mean, ones are just so like, wait, did I read that right? I, I even remember, um, I even remember Richard Dawkins using a passage from Judges to say, how on earth could Christians call this to be a great moral book? Look at this horrid story. Uh, and if you just read the next verse after the story, it says something to the effect of in those days there were there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's almost as if the entire book of Judges is an argument against anarchy because the system was basically God raises up a judge and they go fight some foreign enemy that's oppressing Israel. Then they rule for a little bit until Israel goes back to their sinful ways and somebody else comes in. And, and it's not even when I say Israel, it's. 12 despotic bands loosely connected by some sort of relationship that are half the time at civil war, let alone, you know, fighting against their neighbors. Um, it, it sounds like a complete state of anarchy. And so I think there is a certain reading of the Old Testament that shows that the monarchy was an improvement upon that system. And yet, even in the coronation of the monarch, uh, and I don't have it here, but after Israel asks for a king, and after Samuel essentially appoints Saul to be king, then there's some sort of this almost condemnation from God um, that like all of Israel feels, I, I cannot remember the verse, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but basically they fear for their lives because they realize they've angered God because this is not what he wanted. And, and Samuel says, well, I'll pray for you. You know, don't worry, it, it will be well with you. And it, it is just so complex. How do you build a political system out of that? I, I, my, again, broader interpretation of this is, the monarch was better than the old system, but it was also something that it meant Israel was not fully putting their faith in God because they were looking to this kingship that would protect them like all the pagan nations around them had. And I, I, I think about this in this terms of like, for the same reason that one of my biggest problems with most variants of, say, young earth creationism is that it tries so hard to turn the Bible into a biology textbook. I think I sometimes have the same problem with those who try so hard to turn scripture into a uh, political or into something that will give us a political ideology. Because the more I read, it's like it just doesn't do that. It, it, it gives us some building blocks. It might steer us in the right direction. But it, and I think you said this earlier, you almost have to look outside of scripture to get anywhere near a comprehensive political system. Um, and, and even then, I, I know it's a complex argument because as conservatives, most conservatives, and I, I think you and I share this anyways, we don't want our politics to be systematic, <laughs> but, but you have to have some sort of an ideological framework, not meaning that in the, uh, meaning that in the sense that you have to have some sort of a, I'll call it worldview, a, a political worldview um, that I think you can only get the beginnings of the building blocks from scripture. I'll let you respond to some, to any of that if you like, but I, I wanted to say that to kind of lead into uh, the second half of this conversation, which is one of the greatest places I know to get those sort of additional building materials, if you will, political thought, as you have written before, begins not in scripture, but in ancient Greece. And maybe I can, and again, if you want to respond to that, you're more than welcome to, but I, I wanted to open that up because I, I think sometimes for the person who's heard that for the first time, like, wait, wait, I don't understand what you just said. Could you help unpackage what exactly is meant? Because you're not the first person to say this, that political thought actually begins in Greece. What do we mean by political thought and beginning there? Yeah, look, let, let me come to that. I just want to say one thing to finish off the point I was trying to make about the Old Testament and covenant. So I, I, th I think... I think the key political idea in the Old Testament is actually covenant and mm. research that's been done on covenant and uh, it, it, 
it tends, so, you know, some people think it was kind of modelled on political agreements. So that right there it, it, it looks like a political concept. The, the only way I think to find a coherence in the topsy-turvy story of Israel, and p- particularly looking at it through a political lens, is through covenant. So there is this relationship of promise with certain obligations made by God to the Hebrew people. I guess people talk about a Noahic covenant and an Abrahamic covenant, but setting that aside, God remains faithful in spite of Israel's disobedience, in spite of any political, you know, the changing political context in which the Israelites or before that the Hebrew people find themselves in. Uh, God remains the God. <laughs> of this particular community and they have a special divine vocation in the history of the world. Now, I think there's an incredibly important basis there of political theology, which is that it's not about political systems or any particular political order or ism. You know, God really is above politics. It's not like the fate of the world hangs on democracy. I mean, what kind of God would be imprisoned by the political actions of human beings. And so in spite of all of the ups and downs, you know, it's pretty, pretty, pretty bad. You know, the first once the, there's a king, I mean the king the kingdom's become divided. So <laughs> that's not yeah. a good lesson. Let alone the exile and um, you know, colonization and 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 the like. So the the way to, I think to translate that for Christians is that I think the church plays a similar function. So uh, after Easter, this new body of Christ emerges, the Ecclesia, which is a political concept. That's the word used for the Athenian assembly, Ecclesia. So it has a whole political, pagan political history there, and that's just a really interesting choice of language, quite frankly, for the, for the church. Um, the church serves that function. There are churches today, and if you look throughout history, that have been in every kind of imaginable political circumstance you can think of, from democracy to, you know, that there were churches in Eastern Europe during the, the communist times. There are churches in Muslim countries like Jordan and Egypt. Uh, there are churches in all kinds of different contexts. But, you know, Christ remains the king and the savior of humanity. God still providentially rules the world in some sense and directs history and this vehicle the church has been proved proved itself capable of exist, existing just like the covenantal covenanted people of god in the old testament through every kind of political circumstance and crisis you can think of and so that's why i think you need to take that kind of macro view when you're trying to do political theology and kind of start with that and then always read those individual passages in that larger sort of theological and historical context. Now, to come to the Greek question, it's kind of interesting. If if you've done any work in Greek political thought, and I've done a lot, you you then realise when you come to the Bible, this is not a treatise of political philosophy because you have in a way, a contemporary example of what systematic, rational and empirical, empirically based reflection on politics actually looks like. And the unique contribution uh, to political thought that came from the Greeks was that they were the first, at least that we're aware of through written records, to actually reflect on their own political system, to stand outside of it and document it. You know, Aristotle wrote, is supposed to have uh, wrote something like 116-odd constitutions, only one has survived, the Athenian constitution. It's it's a detailed description of the way political society functioned. We don't get that in the Bible. We don't actually have a detailed understanding of how any of those particular political contexts that the Israelites found themselves in actually look like and function. We we have to try and extrapolate a lot from archaeological records and other sources and all kinds of sophisticated analysis of the little pieces we get here and there in Scripture. And so that, I think, is also a really useful reminder for Christians embarking on this project of political uh, theology. And that is to always remind yourself, and you made the 
the apt parallel here with young earth creationism, which I agree seems vested in a debate about Genesis that that is to me entirely unnecessary because you're just clearly not talking about a scientific text. This is it, and it was written in a pre-scientific culture and the Bible, whilst politics, I would argue, is intertwined from the beginning to the end, sometimes explicitly, and we've talked about some of the passages, but just the narrative arc itself has a kind of political context, as we see with Israel. I mean, Jesus is executed ultimately for a political crime, and there's that there's that uh, interesting uh, bit of information about what was written above the cross in three languages, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, king is a political uh, concept, but it's to remind ourselves this is not political philosophy. Politics is not actually the focus of the Bible. It's more like a subplot, I think. It's not the main plot, and I think that's very clear. Um, It's not a work in political philosophy. The term famously doesn't appear in the Bible at all, and it's not like it was unknown. Certainly in Greek, our term politics comes from Greek, politiko. You know, going back to the polis, uh, that that word was widely used in the time. Uh, there's, there's, there's no way the authors of the Bible were unaware of this term. It was uh, widely used. And so we just need to remember that uh, I think the, the point of the Bible, I think, is salvation, and it's not a political salvation. And so we, we need to be sensitive to not trying to make the Bible do something it's not designed to do. It's not a treatise in political philosophy. It's not a manifesto like Marx's communist manifesto for how we should be governed or for some political revolution. Political implications, yes, of course, undoubtedly, and we do need to consider and and ponder those verses that do deal explicitly with politics so that as Christians trying to be faithful to scripture, we can work out what their implications are for us today in a pretty different context from the one it was written in. But I suppose really what I'm saying is keep politics in a reasonable perspective for the level of focus and treatment it gets in scripture and never let it get in way of what the actual point is. I mean, what are the the gospels telling us about that? They're not interested in politics. They're interested in who the person of Jesus Christ is and this momentous historical event where he was crucified and rose from the dead in this hinge point in history that transformed everything and that offers salvation to people for those, as Paul also teaches in Romans, that um, you know believe in and profess the resurrection. We as the inheritors, in a sense, of Western civilization, I think that we are beautifully and 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 um and confusingly intertwined between greek and the bible right that that it's that, that we're a little of both and um i'm thinking here in ancient times i could have this wrong in fact i wanted to toss this question in your direction because it occurs to me you're probably uh, an authority who could comment on this saint augustine writing the city of god uh, not an easy book to read through. I was a part of a book club once where we actually endeavored to read through the city of God. Uh, granted it was the abridged version. I, I did not have the abridged version and I foolishly thought, well, I'll just read this thing. Someone had made the comment once that they thought that if you read the entire St. Augustine city of God unabridged, you were automatically granted admission to heaven. And there was another individual who said that the, um, the whole, I can't remember who this was, this somebody, the whole of Western civilization is but a footnote in the city of God. So anyhow, this is a complex and, and a big text. But the reason I bring it up is because what I do very much remember in this is Augustine was very deferential to Plato. That, that he essentially said that Plato almost had a divine revelation in thought. It didn't ascend to quite... Um, the Israeli or, or the Christian thought, but that it was very, that one could build a lot off of that. And I'm asking this because I'm, I'm just curious, was St. Augustine largely responsible for why we in the West have inherited so much of Greek philosophy in the first place? Uh, I don't know. I don't know that he's really the key figure in our Greek inheritance, because you've got to remember that, that 
you know, theology in the first couple of Christian centuries is really dominated by Greek speakers in the East. Mm. We sometimes forget, particularly those of us that stand in the Western Christian tradition, Catholic and Protestant, and we're both Protestants, so that's very much our tradition. There's a kind of Latin bias in in our historiography, but um, Christianity early actually had greater success amongst the Greeks than people on the other side. And Greek philosophy, Greek philosophical ideas, language concepts um, comes into Eastern theology very early, for example, in the Cappadocian Fathers, the great Christological debates. Uh, there's a whole literature on that and it's not my area of expertise, but that that is where I think the interplay of Greek philosophy and Christian theology it occurs. Uh, I think it's less pronounced in the West, actually, in in Latin. And Augustine famously didn't have Greek, and he, I think, he was relying on um, Latin translations, as many of his day were. And then, then there's a complex history. You did, you did have um, some figures in the West who thought this intertwining of Greek philosophical concepts, ideas, and language in Christian theology was problematic, Mm -hmm. of course. But I think it was probably inevitable when Christianity emerges in a context of a Greek-speaking civilization where the kind of learning you get, and some of those Cappadocian fathers had studied in Athens, which was the premier that was like the Harvard or Yale of the uh, Roman world back in those days, and they were still studying Plato and and Aristotle. And of course, if we fast forward, then a lot of that, a lot of those Greek texts get lost in the West for a time until they are recaptured. And our dominant historical narrative now is really that it's it's Islam that reintroduces those texts, and there's some truth to that. But it's it's also Greek scholars fleeing Constantinople when after the uh, Ottoman Empire takes it in the mid-15th century they actually bring a lot of that learning too it was never actually lost in the in the monasteries of the east where there's just a continuous tradition of greek speakers and greek learning but i think uh i mean augustine you mentioned augustine so if if i can take the liberty of just hijacking the uh yeah, yeah. look i think i can i can bring him integrate him into the, the whole story i've been spinning here because I, I actually think his most profound idea in the city of God is this concept of Christians being sojourners. You can see this in the epistle to Diognetus, which is I think one of the earliest sort of texts in what you might call proto-political theology. And it's this idea that that Christians are in the world but not of the world and that we have a destiny that is not here and now, but for the here and now we live in the world and therefore, our fate is tied up with what happens in the the political domain. And therefore, we have an interest in in the way that uh, political order is established and the way that we're we're governed, because that goes to the welfare of all human beings. But again, he, I actually think he's he's very attentive. He's very scriptural, and I was going to say maybe he. He agrees with me, but the fact is, I've read a lot of Augustine, so maybe I'm just channeling my own. <laughs> maybe I'm just replaying his own influence on my own, his influence on my my thinking. But he he keeps the sort of render to Caesar thing in view. He's got the Romans thirteen piece in there, but he also has uh, my favourite political verse in the Bible, which we haven't touched on, which is doesn't seem to be a lot of people's favourite, but I I think. Although I've warned against grounding an entire political theology in the verse, if I was forced to do that, it would be, and here I'm definitely going to be in the right book, unlike last time, but again, I said I'm not great with the <laughs> uh, I think it's it's definitely, it's Jeremiah, I think it's something like 29 or uh, chapter 29, verse 27, or maybe that's the other way around, uh, but I really am terrible at uh, getting So long it. as it's not 29.11. <laughs> <laughs> the, the 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 most misquoted verse in the or the most misapplied verse in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, but th- th- this is an extraordinary passage because uh, you know the prophet Jeremiah is conveying this message from God to the 
Israelites in captivity in Babylon. And it's, it's saying, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, for in its welfare you will find your own welfare. And this is a verse I believe Augustine does actually cite, if I'm not mistaken, in that famous book 19 of City of God. I could certainly see if Christians are sojourners, we could think of ourselves as an exiles in a fallen world, but to seek the good of the city we find ourselves in because its welfare is our welfare. Yeah, this is the whole this is the whole archetype of Augustine's City of God recognizes this profound truth that traces its way back to Jeremiah. You know, even in this situation where the Israelites have been sent into exile as punishment, effectively for not being too good on the covenant side of the <laughs> their obligations, and it's 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 like get involved and contribute to the welfare of. Uh, this city, I think it also commands them to pray for for the the city or the the rulers. And so there, there's a profound truth in that, that that Augustine really understood. This is why I like his political theology so much. I mean, it only takes you so far because it's very ancient, but but it's very attentive to to scripture. And it's this idea of whatever political context Christians find themselves in, our welfare is very much tied up in what happens politically. It's not solely tied up in what happens in the political realm, but uh, it's going to affect us. And I would add in the what Jesus identified as the second great commandment to love our neighbours as ourselves. So if we really care about our neighbours and recognising that our welfare, like those of our neighbours, even those who aren't Christians, is going to be tied up into what laws are passed, what benefits are dispensed, what benefits are taken away, the general security of the place, the economic opportunities or lack thereof, and whether we go to war or not, these things are all extremely consequential for the welfare of human beings living in those contexts. And so therefore we we, we have a motivation and, and a duty and an impulse to contribute to the welfare of, you know, the city here or the state that we we live in for our welfare is tied up. But that integrates beautifully and seamlessly to all those other things. It doesn't mean we worship the state. It doesn't mean we get caught up in the, you know, sacralizing our particular ism. It, um, we've got to remember that we are just sojourning on a destiny that is transcendent, that transcends this material existence and and ultimately that destiny is to the new jerusalem and I, I think when you think about it this is another strange symmetry of the christian left and the right when you, when you look at their political activity in particularly in liberal democracies the level of energy anxiety investment of time and resources in all kinds of political fights you know, an alien species, some alien anthropologists coming to kind of try and understand the thinking of this particular thing called Christianity would think that they don't believe in a God who is providentially <laughs> directing mm-hmm. to any particular end or that they don't seem to have lost the hope in the promised new earth and new creation and they act in practice like politics is wholly dependent on what Christians do in the temporal world when you think about it. And I'm not saying, again, that, that they should all sort of down tools and sit, sit around uh, doing nothing, but I just I don't – I think sometimes they've, they've – uh, paradoxically, although the rhetoric is all about theology and Christianity, and this is left and right just coming – you know, they're, they're clearly genuinely motivated by their Christian faith, but somehow it's got out of kilter with the – the God of the Bible, I think. And it's made God kind of, it's almost like he's absconded and he's absent. He's abandoned the earth and now it's up to the church and Christians to correct its course or address every evil or or whatever as though our entire fate and the fate of the church, God's church, depends on whether Donald Trump's elected or, you know, whether this person's elected or whether this law is is passed. And again, just it, it's my to bang on my well beaten drum. It's a matter of perspective. And this is what happens, I think, when you lose sight of the fact that the Bible's not about politics. And so politics is important. I spend my whole time working on it. We're here talking about it right now. And it's a passion of mine. But I always remind myself there's no salvation in politics. This is the most important 
mantra of the should be of the political theologian always keep it in perspective what happens in australia what happens in america what happens globally doesn't alter or really have any bearing on whether i'm saved or not and what my ultimate destiny is and so i always you always need to remind yourself this is not just for the political theologian but the the Christian politician, the Christian political activists, and and there's nothing wrong with those pursuits. I, I, I admire them. I think they have their place. The politically engaged Christian, just remind yourself that you are engaged in something worthwhile, something meaningful, and something very significant. But you follow a God who is well and truly above politics, and you are supposed to live by scripture that has something to say about politics, but it's the subplot. Never lose sight of the actual plot. Yeah, it's good. Jonathan, always a lot of fun to talk to you. Uh, I, I gave you an opportunity to do this last time, but just in case the listeners catching this episode for the first time, where can they go to learn more about you? I have a website called jonathancole.com.au, uh, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N. I think most of my writing and other activities can be can be found there. I've got a podcast. It feels a bit rude to advertise my own podcast on yours, but we, 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 we kind of, <laughs> we've been on each other's podcasts and cross published and the like, but they, they can check out my own podcast called The Political Animals and got a couple of books which, which are on the website, but probably the website is the best place people can go. No, I'll, I'll say it. Check out Jonathan's Political Animals. He has a very interesting guest on. I think I mentioned this, your relatively recent episode where you get a, uh, I'll just call them. I think I think she would very much adopt this label, a non-conservative, to read Edmund Burke, uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France, and just give it a fair read and talk through it. I really found that to be um, one of your best episodes of late. So I, I would definitely encourage a listener to check that out. Thank you, Jonathan. Always a pleasure. Thank you for taking time to come on the show. Oh, it's the pleasure is all mine. I really enjoy talking to you, Josh, and love everything you do on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Saving Elephants podcast. Be sure and subscribe for future episodes. Do you have a topic or question about conservatism, millennials, the Republican Party, or anything else that you'd like us to cover in a future podcast? We would love to hear from you. Email us at savingelephantsblog at gmail.com. That is savingelephantsblog at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and catch our weekly Friday blog posts at savingelephantsblog.com. That is savingelephantsblog.com. Join us next time as we reignite conservatism for millennials. <laughs>